Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrier. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today, we're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us. The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Books Podcast with me, Claire Armistead. This week, we're turning away from the apparently endless churn of catastrophist headlines and dystopian fiction and seeking solace in science. From the Voyager mission of the 1970s to detecting the merging of black holes over a billion years ago, Tim Radford's new book, The Consolations of Physics, is an argument for the pleasures of theoretical thinking. Just in case you're in danger of missing the point, it's subtitled Why the Wonders of the Universe Can Make You Happy. But first we talk to Dr Eugenia Chang about whether advanced mathematics can make a meaningful contribution to creating a better society. Her new book, The Art of Logic, How to Make Sense in a World that Doesn't, shows how mathematical logic can help us see thorny political questions such as public health care, Black Lives Matter and Brexit more clearly and know when politicians and companies are trying to mislead us. She came into The Guardian to talk to Richard Lee, who began by asking her why, after cooking her way to category theory in a previous book, How to Bake Pie, and then taking a trip to explore the uncountable in Beyond Infinity, she has now decided to go back to fundamentals and write a book about logic. My first two books were about making maths fun and tasty and looking at the amazing weird things that you see when you're on a mathematical journey. This book is a bit different. It's more about why maths is important for everybody every day. Recently, in the last couple of years, things have been happening in the world that made me feel it was really important to do what I could to help. And I thought, what can a pure mathematician do? And I thought, well, I use pure mathematical thinking to help me cut through some of the strange discourse that's going on in the world around us. And I like to think and I believe that this could help other people as well. So that's why I wrote this book. So, I mean, we're surrounded, as you say, by argument, but not very much illumination. Uh, So how do you think logic can help us argue better? Logic should be at the heart of all arguments, I think, as well as some other things. In pure mathematics, logic is used to make really good arguments to back things up. And it's actually used for mathematicians to reach agreement. We're really good at reaching agreement. And sometimes I think it's a discipline for agreeing on things. And that's something that is sorely missing from discourse in the world at the moment. People rarely seem to agree about anything. And it can sometimes seem that we're just doomed to be stuck in echo chambers all the time. And yet, I use logic and logical thought processes every day to understand 
the people that I really disagree with from their point of view. And it's a case of using logic to unpack everything that they think step by step without bringing my emotions into it, but understanding it from their point of view, which is very different. Yeah, that's a very unusual picture of mathematics as a kind of discipline, as a job, as a kind of a cultural project. Why, does, why do you say mathematics is a process of finding agreement? I think mathematics is a little unusual among disciplines because it makes progress very steadily and mathematicians really agree when something is correct because of proofs that we use. And proofs are based on very logical deductions. And we have to set up the framework for making those logical deductions really carefully at the beginning. And we have, very importantly, not just a framework for deductions, but a framework for disagreement and for pointing out when someone is wrong. And because it's very clear, it means that we can reach agreement about whether someone is wrong or not. Now, of course, we still disagree a little bit, but it's very clear where the disagreement is coming from. And even if we can't agree in daily life, sometimes I think we could reach better agreements about where are the points of difference instead of just yelling at each other about, no, you're wrong, no, you're wrong. No. We can find out which things we actually agree on and which things we don't because often I find that there are points of contact that are points of agreement. Even if someone's end conclusion is very different from mine, they might be starting from something quite similar. It's just that they have one assumption or one small belief in the middle that makes them veer off in a different direction. So what's the kind of logical mistakes that are poisoning the kind of current debate? There are so many logical <laughs> mistakes. One, though, is that everyone accuses everyone else of not being logical. But does anyone know what that really means? And so I spend part of the early parts of the book explaining what logic really is. So you have to start with some basic assumptions and then use logic to deduce things from those. You can't start from nothing because if you start from nothing, that's like cooking with no ingredients. You can't make anything. So you have to start from something. And those basic assumptions can't come from logic because they have to come from something else. And so sometimes people think if you're making a basic assumption, then you're not being logical. Well, that might be true. But in that case, no one's being logical, in which case, does that mean that we can't get anywhere? No, I think we should then look at our basic assumptions and see where they come from. So some people's basic assumptions come from fear. Some come from prejudice. Some come from misinformation. Some come from reading a book that they believed, whether that is a scientific book or a religious book. And we should acknowledge all these different sources of our basic assumptions. Secondly, sometimes people simply use the wrong definitions. And this is something that we're very clear about in maths, that we should agree what our definitions are in the first place. So if someone is talking about immigration and they are making an assumption that all immigrants are illegal, then we really aren't going to be able to get anywhere until we sort that out in the first place. And yet we tend to have the argument about what we should do about immigration without clearing up that basic definition at the beginning. And then, of course, there are simply gaps in logic that people make. They might say, well, obviously, or it just is true, or it simply is a fact. And occasionally they even say mathematically. And I like the idea that they invoke mathematics as something that is supposed to make an argument secure. But that's not how it works. It's not a magic word. It's not like a spell you cast by saying mathematically. For example, they say things like, well, mathematically, such and such election result can't happen. Well, it turned out that mathematically some election results could happen. So using those words correctly 
And not making sweeping statements about things that can and can't happen is another big source of logical problems. You also talk about the difficulties with switching stuff around, so arguing first one way and then the opposite. So logic flows one way and one way only, but we can get confused and make it go the opposite way by mistake. And one common mistake I see is where people think, well, US citizens can definitely live legally in the US. And sometimes people turn that around in their head and think that in order to live legally in the US, you have to be a US citizen, and that therefore anyone who isn't a US citizen is illegal. That is a logical error. And it's also just simply not true. Unfortunately, some people don't see the logical error, and they also won't take the evidence of it being not true either. So do you think of those three areas? So you've said there's uh, questions over assumptions, there's kind of problems in building your, in constructing your logic, and there's also a problem in, in your definitions. Of those three areas, which do you think is kind of the most urgent to address? I think they're all urgent. <laughs> all <laughs> it, the same time. It, it's not a competition. I think that we shouldn't try and only address one at a time. We should address all of them. The logic is also a powerful tool for checking or showing whether you're right or not. Is that one of the reasons why you think people are suspicious of it? Because they could actually turn out to be wrong. Yes, people are not prepared to admit that they could turn out to be wrong often. But I think there's something else here, which is that when we are arguing with people, I don't think the aim should be to show that one person's right and one person's wrong. That's not productive. And it's one of the things that causes people to go off into further and further extremes and to get entrenched in positions they might not have intended to be entrenched in. However, I think we should look for the sense in which someone has a point and the sense in which somebody else has a point. And actually, maths turns out not to be just about getting the right answer all the time. And that's something I discussed quite a lot in the previous book about infinity. There is no right answer about what infinity is. There are just different points of view and different situations in which it can mean different things. And so in many arguments about life, it's not that one person's wrong and another person is right. It's that, well, there is a sense in which, for example, if someone says, might say, oh, making Christians bake a cake for gay people is just like making Jews bake a cake for Nazis. And then someone else goes, that's a terrible analogy. And then someone goes, yes, it's the same. No, it's not. Well, okay, so there is a sense in which those things are the same because it's getting somebody, making someone bake a cake for somebody they disagree with. But there is a sense in which those things are different because one of them is making someone bake a cake for a group of people who committed genocide against them. And the other one is not. And if we can look for the sense in which somebody has a point and the sense in which the other person has a point, then we can start having a more sensible discussion about which point is important and relevant rather than just yelling. I guess one of the things that that makes me think about is the idea that you're assuming in some sense that people are arguing with good faith. Is that perhaps a little naive in the era of Brexit and Donald Trump? I think that some people are definitely not arguing with good faith, but I think that there are other people who really are trying to argue with good faith. And there are some extreme people who are determined not to listen to anybody else, and we might not be able to reach them immediately. But we should not think that that's everybody. I don't think it is everybody. I think that we're being pushed in those directions, unfortunately. But we can start with the people who really are trying to argue in good faith. And there are plenty of people, I think, who are, but don't exactly have the tools for doing it or feel that they simply can't understand why the other people would say such things. And I see this a lot in commentary on social media and in articles saying, I just can't understand how anybody would do that. I can't understand what people say. I can't understand why anyone would vote for something that is against their best interests, for example. But then if 
those people are really trying to understand it, then we can help them see that actually those people don't feel that they're voting against their best interests. It's just they see their interests lying in a different way. And those people probably look at the other people and think they're voting against their best interests. So if there are still some people who are genuinely trying to understand what everyone else is thinking, then we have a hope we can start with the more reasonable people and then hopefully skew things a bit more in that direction so that then the people who are a little bit further out will be brought more to the reasonable end of things and then with a knock-on effect. I am an optimist, which is why I write books and it's why I'm in education because I think we can change things. I mean, the, the blurring of levels that you discuss with your uh, uh, cake analogy with the Nazis and the, the, the people... Uh, who were who were objecting to baking a, a cake for people with with sexuality they don't share. I mean, it's is is again, it's it's something whereby it's the level of analogy that's being drawn that there is the problem there. But we're working in in a in a in an environment where politicians are sometimes deliberately blurring those levels of analogy. They're they're doing it on purpose. They are doing it on purpose. So it's really up to us to call them out on it and point out what it is and hold them accountable to the levels that they're using and. I believe that this is one of the powerful aspects of pure mathematics, that we make analogies between different situations, but we are very precise about what analogy we are invoking. We don't just say this thing is analogous to that thing. We say here is the exact thing that I'm talking about that they have in common. And that means that it removes some of that ambiguity and that we can't sort of blurrily wash from one thing to another as we choose. And I think if we if we encouraged more people to do that in daily life, then we would be able to iron out some of those ambiguities. And if we all get used to doing that, then we'll, I hope, be able to get the politicians to pin themselves down better as well. Isn't one of the problems with that strategy or a possible problem with that strategy that the precision is gained only at the expense of pushing the complications off somewhere else? For example, I'm thinking of your Battenberg cake uh, structure to your analysis of tolerance, mm-hmm. where you suggest that um, the paradox of whether you should be tolerant about intolerance can be resolved by saying that you need to be tolerant of all things that do not hurt other people. Mm-hmm. So that's a perfectly acceptable definition, perhaps. But then you have to agree about what you mean by being something that hurts other people. Yes, there is always something else that you have to try and explain, but I think you should at least try. And in mathematics, what we always do is we explain something, and then when it needs more explanation, we are then, the onus is on us to provide more explanation, and we keep going until we get something that feels like a basic principle or that feels like first principles. And I acknowledge that logic can't answer all the questions because we have to start somewhere. But if we're going to be powerfully logical people and not just logical people, then we should be able to unpack those things further and further and further to somebody who is being sceptical. It's the people who have no explanation beyond, well, it just is, that that's not very powerfully logical. For example, people who say something like, well, I believe in Brexit because I think that we should make our own laws. But that's kind of just saying the same thing twice. Why do you think that we should make our own? Well, I just think that we should govern ourselves. And if they can't actually unpack that any further, then they're not being illogical, but they're not being powerfully logical. And I would like to see more people able to explain why they think the things they do further back so that we can understand the roots of things. Perhaps one of the ways in which mathematics is a kind of functioning discipline and politics at the moment is less so is because we find it much harder to agree on a shared set of first principles. 
Yes. And the thing in mathematics is that you don't actually have to agree on the first principles. You have to agree that if you take these first principles, then these other things will follow. And I think in political arguments, often it's, well, if we believe these things, then these other things will follow. And people get so upset about the things that follow that they forget that it's because we're starting from possibly a very different set of initial beliefs. Now, if we can't agree on the initial beliefs, there's no point even following that logic. What we should do is think about those initial beliefs. So, for example, if someone really believes that racism doesn't exist, then there's no point talking about what we should do about privilege or what we should do about helping underrepresented minorities because they simply don't believe that racism exists. And then we need to do something else to try and persuade them that racism actually does exist. And that probably won't be logical because it's a fundamental belief they have. So that that would be more something like experience or getting people more familiar with people of different races. Because if you grow up surrounded by people of different races, then it's not something that's so strange and maybe scary seeming or working out why is there some kind of fear? Is there some fear that has maybe been played up to by some politicians that maybe we can downgrade in some other way we can look at people who aren't afraid of other races of people and understand how they got to those positions so if we understand what at what level the logical disagreement is happening then we can address it with the the appropriate approach because if it's an emotional disagreement then we shouldn't try and address it with logic but if it's a logical disagreement then we shouldn't necessarily try and address it except by logic I guess this speaks to the sort of point that psychologists like Jonathan Haidt make, which is that logic is sometimes something that comes after you've already reached your conclusion as a kind of post hoc justification. It sometimes does happen like that. And that can make it sound like it's not real, that somehow we're just making things up after the event to back up our arguments. But I think that there is something valid to feeling something very strongly and then finding the logic behind it afterwards. And actually, a lot of maths research progresses like this. You don't just randomly use logic and see what you can prove. You think of something that you believe is going to be true, and then you prove it somehow. And you often do that by examining where your belief came from. So, for example, if I truly believe that, for example, women have a harder time in the world because the power structures have all been set up by men. That is something I believe because I feel it. I can then unwind that belief following logic, following history, following when it was that women got the vote, how women have been treated as property through the ages, whether they hold positions of power. And then I can back it up with those things, starting from my genuine gut feeling that it is harder for women because men hold all the positions of power. And that unwinding gets you somewhere interesting, gets you somewhere where you might be able to address those, those issues. Yes, it's not just shouting and ranting and railing and complaining. And I think that many people in the current era feel a bit helpless because it seems like there's nothing we can do or we're powerless or we try to argue with people on the internet and it completely fails. And I think that finding something that will actually help where we can understand something and then address an issue and change something can not only actually change something, but also can help us feel less helpless and less just randomly angry all the time. 
Uh, you, you say that it was a book written to this political moment that we're at right now. I mean, the examples that you use are racism, gender inequality, weight gain and so on. They're, they're very hot button issues. Are you kind of bracing yourself for the reception? I am bracing myself, yes. Unfortunately, as a female person with some kind of public profile, one has to be permanently braced for the responses of certain types of people. I am bracing myself a little bit more, but it's so important to have made this contribution that I'm ready for it and if that happens I will feel almost that it vindicates me even more that we need it but yes it is unpleasant and I don't want to make it sound like oh well we should just put up with it it's terrible that these things happen especially to women in the public eye but realistically I know that these things do happen I was very struck by your suggestion that changing your mind is a kind of important sign of rationality an important sign that you're actually trying to do, to play the game of offering reasons and listening and also that it offers a way of breaking out of disputes over those foundational principles yes the ability to change one's mind is often seen as a weakness especially when it's politicians and we say oh they did something in u-turn or oh they will just say whatever it will will get them elected which i think is a, is a kind of funny thing to think because if if in a democracy, if all the people want something to happen, then shouldn't we expect our politicians to respond to that? But in any case, having some kind of framework for when it's time to change your mind, I think is part of being a reasonable person in the sense that you can be reasoned with. Whereas if there's absolutely nothing that would cause you to change your mind about someone, then that's not really rational. That's a blind sort of faith. And I think that loyalty is a fine human quality, but blind loyalty is very dangerous. And from there, we see things like the idolization of movie stars to the point that some people will not accept the possibility that they behaved badly. And once they get to that point of invulnerability and they think that there's nothing that can possibly change people's mind about them, that's when they feel able, I think, to behave really badly. And then these things continue. And something similar happens with people who don't really believe in science. They say, oh, well, scientific theories are just theories, and sometimes they turn out to be wrong, which shows that we don't really know about them. But in a way, the fact that science sometimes shows itself to be wrong is crucial to the framework of the scientific method. It's not showing that science is weak. It's showing that science is reasonable. So who are you trying to convince with this book? I am obviously trying to convince everybody because I am a, an ambitious person. But I think it's important to say that it sounds like this is a, a, addressing many adult themes about the adult world. But young people today, I'm very impressed with how socially aware they are and how they think about these issues. And some of them have come to my talks already and their parents have wondered whether they're maybe a bit young, even children as young as 10 and 11. And it turns out they are so excited that someone will actually talk about these things in front of them because they really care. They're aware of this, they're thinking about the future and they want to be able to contribute. And suddenly now that it's become mathematics rather than politics, they're allowed to be part of the conversation. And I think that the future is in the hands of the young people. They are the next generation. They're going to be here when many of us aren't here anymore. So I hope that this will find its way into the hands of many young people, as well as the many adults who need it. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. 
So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, my name is Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic, and I'm excited to talk to you about Club Med. Club Med operates beach and mountain resorts and is the best all-inclusive getaway for families. They have Club Med Punta Cana, their flagship family resort, and many other options in Mexico, the Caribbean, and around the world. Club Med are the pioneers of the all-inclusive concept, which is the best way to vacation. Great for families, groups, or even solo travelers looking for land and water sports, delicious food. Food and a place to make unforgettable memories. Visit clubmed.us, call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. You're listening to The Guardian Books Podcast. You've just heard Eugenia Cheng talking to Richard Lee. Now, former Guardian science editor Tim Radford was also motivated to write after feeling desolate at the state of the world. His book, The Consolations of Physics, Why the Wonders of the Universe Can Make You Happy, wants to persuade us that a branch of science many people find soulless can offer much spiritual balm. He makes his case in what he calls a love letter to physics. Tim joins me now. Tim, I've been reading this book in bed over the weekend and I have to say it is an absolute joy, um, but I am not entirely decided whether it's a work of science or a work of philosophy. And obviously your title, The Constellations of Physics, refers back to Boethius. Or maybe it's a distinction that can't be made anymore as physics is so theoretical and so beyond our comprehension. Is it possible that it is actually a form of philosophy? It is sort of philosophy, and it is definitely consolation. I start, the book started writing itself. I had no control over what happened. I thought about President Trump. I thought about the political scene in Britain and in Europe. I thought about what's happening in the Philippines, Russia, and the Ukraine. And I became suddenly immensely depressed because I had imagined, we who were around for 1989 and 1990, imagined that the world was getting better. And quite clearly, it is not getting better. So I just searched for escapism. Some people think about sailing on the Mediterranean in a, in a, in a two-mastered yawl. Some people think about sheep. I thought about Voyager. Voyager came into my head. So explain what Voyager is. Voyager is a mission that was launched in 1977 at two spacecraft, and the, there are two distinguishing features that make them different from all other spacecraft. One is that both have left the solar system and they will never come back. They are heading for the distant stars. The second thing is that unlike all other spacecraft, they carry a record. They carry a record of greetings in a huge number of planetary languages. And, and a lovely anecdote you have about them, them having a, the sound of a smithy. Yes, oh yes. And why do they, they have the sound of a smithy, i.e. a blacksmith? It was simply a, a compilation of earth sounds. There's the sound of a carpenter. This is, there's the sound of sheep being rounded up. It's just a little set of snatches of sounds so that were anyone to find it, you have to imagine an extraterrestrial civilization not so advanced that it wouldn't even recognise Voyager as a spacecraft, but advanced enough to our standard to sort of get the hang of it, grab it, find the record, work out that the grooves have to be scratched with the stylus, and then the, you, you have to actually tune into the vibrations that you would expect to find on a planet with an atmosphere not unlike Earth. So the chances of anyone listening to it are very small, but I loved it 
because it represents an act of hope. And once I started thinking about physics in general, I realized that what's consoling about it, it breaks down into two or three things. One is that it's there's nothing mean or ungenerous about it. Nobody gets into physics for the money. You wouldn't ever dream of actually trying to make money out of it, although you can. And indeed, the wealth of the planet is now based on physics, but based on physics that was done some time ago. The physics that's being done now is gloriously incomprehensible. It's utterly reasonable at the same time. That is, everything that is being posited by physicists is supported by reason and The reason itself is being continuously checked and challenged by other physicists all over the world. They don't care whether they're Israeli or Palestinian. They don't care whether they're Pakistani or Indian. They really, all they're interested is in in physics. And that's immensely encouraging. It means that humans can cooperate. The second thing is that it involves fantastic engineering. I mean, engineering on a scale that our forefathers could not have ever envisaged. I mean, you, you actually posit the theory that the Voyager spacecraft could still be going when we're oh, dead, when, no. when our civilization is dead. I don't think dead. it's a theory. I think it's, I think it's pretty certain that we and everything we have done in this solar system will have disappeared in about five billion years. The sun is a main sequence star with a, with a life cycle, and at the end of its life cycle it would swell up into a red giant and incinerate all the inner planets all the way out to Mars, and that means that even the plastic that we say is it is indestructible will be turned back into individual but, atoms. But, hang on a minute. So you're saying that the, these two spacecrafts that was launched in 1977 will still be going they in will... five billion years, oh, five yes. million yeah, years time. Yes. What? I mean, they they're also got plastics in them, presumably, and metal. Yes. So why have they not degraded like because, our civilization? Ah, because they're answering. They're this is ah this is the second comfort of physics. It works. They are behaving according to a prediction made by Sir Isaac Newton 350 years ago. He simply said that a body subjected to a constant force constantly accelerates and a body that's already moving will continue moving unless you apply a force to stop it. And since Voyager is travelling at 16 kilometres a second out into the void, it will go on travelling at 16 kilometres a second until it reaches a star. If it comes too close to the star, of course, it will plunge into it and and, um, be incinerated. How likely is that? Very unlikely. Why? Well, that's because the universe is mostly empty. The third one is that it's possible to stand back and gape at the scale of everything. And once again, physics has actually revealed this to us. I write about a lovely study by Hubble Telescope. Hubble has produced this range of astonishing pictures, but my favourite is a thing called the deep field. It simply looked for a tiny black spot in the sky where there were no stars, about the size of a grain of sand at an arm's length, and focused on it for 10 days. Now, unlike the human eye, a spacecraft can remember photons. A photon is a little particle of light. And although it looked utterly black to us and indeed to our telescopes on Earth there were still little bits of light coming from very distant galaxies and if you keep your computerised camera pointing at the same spot for long enough you'll be able to build up a picture of all the galaxies that are sending light and this tiny spot in the sky turned out to have at least 1500 galaxies in it really what that experiment was telling us was that the universe is at least twice as big as we thought it was and since it's already 
incomparably big. I mean, we we have no standard for measuring the scale of the universe. It's just enormous, and it's practically empty. If you gross up all the matter in the universe and try and spread it evenly through the universe, you'd work it would work out at about one atom per cubic meter at the most generous. Now, Not much. Wh- and one of the interesting things about this, in a way, this book is a historiography of science because it, it deals a lot with all the people who've written about it in the past, yes. going back, right the way back. But one of the people, obviously, is Stephen Hawking, whose brief history of time in 1988 is still thought of as one of the great masterworks. But you make the point that actually his statement that if we discover everything, we will know the mind of God, saying that that has been superseded, that you can no longer make that statement. So he is already, that is a historical artefact. His very last, post, his posthumous proposition is that the universe is finite, finite which suggests that if it's finite, then the human mind could in some way encompass it, so we could possibly know the mind of God. But he's now out on a limb that he has helped create for himself and that in that his his own theories initially suggested that there might be a thing called the multiverse and we're we're just part of a kind of a champagne flask of 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 universes bubbling out of nothing and the um economical number for the number of possible universes is 10 to the power 500 now that's that's one with 500 zeros after it and there's another line of argument that says no that's far too many most of those couldn't exist it must be much smaller than that i was just thinking if it was much smaller how much smaller well let's suppose that it's a billion trillion times smaller than that than this preposterous figure that would still give you something like 10 to the 480 universes. That's 480 zeros after the original one. Science has a way, I mean, especially physics and especially theoretical physics, has a wonderful way of making the universe seem logical and unimaginable at the same time. Why is that consoling? I find it absolutely disorientating. Uh, it's, well, it's difficult, but if you stare at it for long enough, you begin to realise... you. you <laughs> Ideas can grow on you. The idea that God made the world in seven days took a little while to grow on people, and it's it's taking a, a little while for us to grow out of a simple solution like that, even though nothing in science suggests that the world is only 10,000 year years old and happened all at once. We know that it happened slowly and gradually over a, over a spell of 13.8 billion years. But we're still stuck with old ideas because they've become familiar. And I think a lot of the notions of theoretical science will become not boring, not mundane, because that's what we aren't. We aren't being mundane when we, when we think about the universe. We're actually thinking about the first things, the things that matter. And this is where the parallel with religion comes in. You are asking questions that religion asked and art asks and philosophy asks. And this question's really simple. Why are we here? How did we get here? And where are we going? And physics in particular has been brilliant so far. It's actually taken us to the moon without any, even without the help of Alfred Einstein. With the help of Einstein, it's going to take us to the edge of the, the observable universe and that is a distance so far that we don't have words to describe it. And all of this, of course, is so much nicer to think about than, say, what's going on in most of the world around us. But it does inevitably mean that we will all die. 
And here we are obsessing about climate change, about nuclear war, whatever we're obsessing about. Why should we be worried if it's all going to happen anyway? Well, it's all going to happen anyway, but on a scale of time that is um, of no great concern to us. It would be so much nicer if we tried to make this place acceptable and friendly right now. And once again, projects like CERN, the, uh, the Large Hadron Collider in Geneva, which involves 19 nations who put up $7 billion and who employ 10,000 physicists and engineers in keeping this astonishing machine going, they have produced essentially one simple confirmation of the great scheme of how the universe works that Hawking and many other people have all worked on. And this confirmation is a thing called the Higgs boson. And the comedy about the Higgs boson is that they haven't actually found it. What they've found is evidence that it must have been there it's a tiny fraction of time at the beginning of the universe. It's like a wrinkle in time, isn't it? Like well, that. no, the, <laughs> wrinkle, the wrinkle... The, 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 yes, it, it's... What, with what the Higgs boson is, is it's part of the... There are some lovely ideas that predate science, and one of them is that light is the most important thing in the universe. This line, God said, let there be light, actually resonates and it just turns out that light is the only measuring device we really have... It's the only one we can rely on. It's the only one that's as, that's an absolute dead-on standard. And that we are all essentially made of it. That is, in Einsteinian thinking, matter is just condensed light. And the question you then ask yourself is, yes, but why is matter heavy? Because light isn't heavy. And this is where the Higgs boson comes in. It's a little field that is supposed to give matter mass. I mean, this is a simple way of putting it, and I don't really care to get into the mechanics of it because I couldn't possibly explain them to you. The comforting thing, once again, about physics is that even though you and I can't understand it, we know enough people who know, who know enough mathematics and enough physics and enough science history for them to be convinced. So there is a kind of a group of people who know what they're doing. At the moment, says you, but yes. so did lots of other generations of scientists mm. over the ages think that, and now we think, oh, they were so, they didn't know anything. Well, you know? no, it, it's, it's, when you look back, it's quite easy to see where they went wrong and why they were on the right track where they, when they were on the right track. Newton, of course, is nominally wrong in that his, his laws of motion do not explain motion and they don't explain gravity, but they do predict everything about gravity. So Newton got some things incredibly right and there's people, any physicist is still marvelling at the, at the insights that he had. And the next one, of course, was Einstein. Newton couldn't possibly know that the speed of light was fixed. No physicist really believed the speed of light was fixed. They thought if you're travelling at 20 miles an hour and you shine a torch, surely your light beam is 20 miles an hour faster than the one that's standing still. No, it's not. If two beams of light meet each other, they still meet each other at only the speed of light. Oh, there you go. And that's complicated. That's it. I even have problems understanding that a, that yes, a block of lead and a feather can land at the same time. You've, you've, yes, but you're, you've, you've had 100 years to work that one out. And you've certainly had 49 years of confirmation that lead and feather would hit the ground at the same time if there wasn't any air to stop them. But I can't observe it. That's the, this is the no, problem it, with these things. Yeah, yes, we, we, can't, we can't observe it. But we can actually take the evidence of people who have now sufficiently observed it. Any reporter got used to getting letters from people saying, dear sir, my theory proves that Einstein is wrong. 
someone who didn't believe Einstein stuck some atomic clocks on Boeing 747s and sent them spinning around the world in different directions and then compared the time they recorded with the time that was static on Earth down at the airport and found that actually time is different for people at a higher altitude or a faster rate. And this is such a puzzling thing to get to grips with. I mean, it is a really difficult thing to get to grips with. But what it says is that, in one sense, time doesn't quite exist. Um, and if it does exist, what is it? And the pleasure, we, let's, we get back to Boethius now. The pleasure of it is that there were people five, 1,500 years ago, 500 years ago and 1,500 years ago, and possibly 2,500 years ago, still puzzled about these huge questions what um, Eugenia Cheng, who, who we've just heard, um, said rather wonderfully, which seems to sum up both projects, is what I want to see in the world is more good arguments. <laughs> yes. I mean, oh, that's not a bad, not a bad aim, is wouldn't it? Wouldn't we love good arguments? What we, uh, oh, this brings us back to, back, to, back to why we need consoling. Bo- Boethius needed consoling because he was actually in prison and about to be executed rather barbarously by... Um, a Visigoth, was a it? A Visigoth, I think it was, mm. yeah, Theodoric. And... He knew that however things were, that it wasn't going to end well. So he he did actually just sit back and start contemplating the eternal mysteries. And although he was a Christian and a devout Christian, and he lived in an era in which people took, took religion very seriously to a point of killing each other, which I'm afraid is still true, he didn't really invoke God as an explanation for anything. He actually tried to work it out using his own logic and that too is a, is a very attractive thing mm. now it's this is a, an area that has has um in the 20th century and on into the 21st century including yourself has it has attracted brilliant rhetoricians hasn't it so oh, yes. like carl sagan yeah. uh, even jimmy carter whose, yeah. whose words are immortalized in the voyager we might end with that um but you all the time are re- referring not just scientists but you refer to milton to dante to shakespeare why is this? What do artists have to do with this? Well, I th- I, that's a question that betrays your Englishness, I think. <laughs> Only the English seem to think that um, that one's, one's intellectual baggage comes in two bits and you're only allowed to take one of them on the plane in the journey through life. You can take them both on the plane. I had the extraordinary pleasure of meeting Primo Levi. Not many people in England can say this, but I did meet him. And I actually asked him what he thought about the two cultures question. And he said he found it bewildering why why would why wouldn't you want to be interested in the arts and science and as we both know I have a background in in reporting on the arts and loved it I mean it was a, a, including a, being literary editor of the Guardian oh, yeah, the, and, and arts editor of the Guardian too and that I thought at the time was the best job on the planet it was inconceivable that I should ever want to leave to do anything else but life directs you in journalism and it just directed me to science. And as soon as I started looking at science, I saw that there was this profound ascetic pleasure in the ideas and indeed in the picture of the world, this fantastically enriching picture of the world that, that is being delivered every day by biology, by geophysics and geology itself. And, of course, in space science and computing and in um, information technology or sciences that have actually happened in my life in our lifetime you can't not enjoy these things and they deserve to be celebrated I, you you mentioned Carl Sagan I think uh, he he in fact was one of the was one of the begetters of Voyager um, it was a, a fantastic moment in history 
it happens once every 179 years. All the planets in the solar system are on the same side of the sun. They even almost line up. So if you sent a spacecraft off, it would be possible for it to visit nearly all of them. And that's what the Voyager mission was for. And if, it had, if this circuit had happened 10 years earlier, we would have no Voyager because it, wouldn't, it would be just inconceivably expensive to send missions out uh, to all the planets when they're not at all in one great line. Now, since we um, started by mentioning the depressing name of Trump, let's let's end with um, the rather less depressing name of Jimmy Carter, who who may yet come to be the immortal one, <laughs> because his words are going to be in the, the universe forever. In your in your um, right. estimation that, on as, Voyager as, one and two, as long as there is a Voyager, Jimmy Carter will be out there telling people. This is a present from a small, distant world, a token of our sounds, our science, our images, our music, our thoughts and our feelings. We are attempting to survive our time so that we may live into yours. That was Tim Radford. The Consolations of Physics, Why the Wonders of the Universe Can Make You Happy is published by Scepter, while The Art of Logic, How to Make Sense in a World That Doesn't is published by Profile. Next week, Lisa Allardyce will be talking to Kate Atkinson about her latest wartime novel, Transcription. In the meantime, you can subscribe and review us on all your favourite podcatchers and join the discussion on Twitter by leaving a comment on the podcast page or by emailing us on bookspodcast at theguardian.com. But for now, from me, Claire Armistead, and our producer, Simon Barnard, goodbye and thanks for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Hi, this is Bachelor Clues from Game of Roses, of course, and I want to talk about Club Med. Everybody knows Club Med has been the pioneer of the all-inclusive resort since 1950 with almost 70 resorts worldwide, ranging from beachside destinations in the Caribbean and Mexico to exotic locations like the Maldives and Morocco or even the mountain destinations like Japan and the European Alps. Dine on delicious gourmet cuisine, enjoy more than 20 activities, and make memories with your family. For more information, visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.